A lot has changed throughout the course of human history, but humanity's lifespan isn't one of them. While our average allotted time on this earth has grown exponentially during recent centuries, individuals routinely survived into their 70s and 80s in each civilization that you were taught about in high school. They were just the exception, rather than the rule. Experts believe that it is possible, although not probable, for us to live until we have gone around the sun 125 times at the most. Of course, none of us have ever gotten to that point, as the world's oldest recorded human, Jean Calmette of France, merely managed to make it until the tender young age of 122 years and 164 days. While our lifespans haven't changed since the Stone Age, we have managed to dramatically alter our life expectancy. In the Middle Ages, life expectancy was just over 31 years which meant that your midlife crisis might occur as early as age 16. This exceptionally low number was largely because of how many individuals died as infants. The BBC tells us that if you could make it to age 20 in the Middle Ages, your life expectancy jumped all the way up to 45 years. Eleanor was 31 years old when she received her annulment from the French King Louis. In just those 31 years, she had already lived a full life. Growing up in Aquitaine, she lived a life full of poetry, knightly chivalric displays, and educated philosophical discussions. During her time as the Queen of France, she had attempted to replicate the southern troubadourian culture within the confining walls of Paris. When that failed, she sought out her uncle while on crusade in order to reconnect with the remnants of her childhood. Safely enmeshed within a world that finally felt familiar, she let her guard down, and soon rumors of an affair with her uncle jeopardized her standing within the Paris gossip circles. But it was ultimately her inability to produce a son with Louis that meant that her time as queen had come to an end. After saying goodbye to her two daughters, she set out at the age of 31 to begin a life anew. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This is the second of two episodes regarding Eleanor of Aquitaine, the Queen of England. Eleanor married Henry of the Plantengens, a boy of 20 years old who had just come into his own after inheriting the French province of Normandy and Anjou. For Eleanor, Henry was the exact opposite of her ex-husband Louis. Upon face value, Henry would have reminded her of her father, a warrior lord who regularly charged from the front and only stopped to ask questions after the task was already complete. For her husband, Eleanor was a means to an end, as his ambition knew no boundaries. Marriage to Eleanor would allow him to add Aquitaine to his land holdings, making him far and away the most powerful of all French vassals. If Eleanor, already eleven years his senior, 
was already too old to produce a child, as the gossip suggested. Henry could feel confident that he remained young enough that he would be able to find a way to make her disappear, paving the path for him to marry another. Historian Douglas Boyd reveals to us that the marriage between the two was a masterstroke, which created a power block that stretched all the way from the snows of the Pyrenees to the waters of the English Channel, and eventually united nearly half of Louis's kingdom. On May 18th, a ceremony in due form in Portois Cathedral made her wife to the man who not only solved her pressing need for a spouse strong enough to protect her domains from present enemies, but owed her a lifetime debt of gratitude for making him the most powerful man in France. Ironically, he would become, in the course of time, her most implacable enemy of all. Embracing the concept that it is always better to ask for forgiveness than permission, Henry never sought to inquire whether or not his king was okay with the quick nuptials. Thus, Eleanor's marriage to Henry began a series of on-again, off-again wars that some claim go so far as to have lasted for the next 300 years. Louis charged Henry with treason for failing to consult him. The king was unable to charge Eleanor because the Duchy of Aquitaine no longer belonged to France. Thus, she was no longer required to serve the throne. Still, it remained open season on the newlyweds, with the church, the king of England, and Henry's own brother forming a coalition to eliminate the brash young Henry. The declarations were more about land than honor. Louis was desperate to prevent Eleanor from giving birth to a son, for he still maintained control of her two daughters, each of whom would be removed from the line of succession for Aquitaine if a boy arrived on the scene. Henry had a loose claim to the throne of England. Invading now would allow Stephen, the current king, to weaken his son's competition. His brother turned against Henry in order to gain both land and power something that he had little of as the second-born son of an elite feudal family. Dynastic squabbling between brothers ran rampant throughout this era, and Eleanor's future family was no exception to the norm. The church seemed to get involved because everyone else seemed to have an opinion on the issue, and in this era the church liked to make sure that it had its hand in every major event. I'll be actively trying to avoid focusing the spotlight too much on the men involved in Eleanor's story, so forgive me if you think I'm glossing over a lot of the battles. If you want more on Henry, you can listen to my first episode in the Richard of the Lionheart series for more background on his house. Without delving too deeply, I will point out that Henry was exceptionally good at war, particularly when he was fighting multiple foes. He held the British back with a feint and attacked Louis so quickly that the Frenchman's forces were straightaway routed, and the king fell seriously ill. Never waiting in one place for long, Henry pressed his advantage in order to capture his brother's castle and sue for peace before the King of England ever managed to cross the Channel. Boyd tells us that 
far from weakening Henry's position, the aborted invasion had actually done him a double favor in forcing him to show his strength as a warning to his neighbors not to try to profit from his absence when he did eventually invade England, and also obliging him to delay that invasion until the following year, when he was better prepared. Hoping to immediately produce an heir, Henry spent the entire next year in close proximity to his wife, touring her lands in southern France. Their honeymoon was enlightening for the former Queen of France, as Eleanor immediately realized that life with Henry would bring a new set of challenges. Rather than relaxing and enjoying the pleasures of aristocratic life, Henry was constantly on the move. Eleanor's secretary, Peter of Blois, revealed that if the king has announced that he will depart early next morning, the decision is sure to be changed, and he will sleep until midday. You will see pack animals waiting under their loads, teams of horses standing, heralds sleeping, court traders fretting, and everyone grumbling. One runs to the whores to ask them where the king is going, for this breed of courtier often knows the palace secrets. Others wrote that Henry spoke of time, but knew not what it was. Quite opposite of the overly structured Parisian court, Henry did whatever pleased him in a hyper-chaotic, uncontrolled ADHD way. Boyd tells us that the entire retinue wore out their clothes, their mounts, their bodies, and their souls such as the relentless pace Henry expected of everyone in his service. Yet no courtier could risk not being present when summoned at any hour of the day or night, for those Henry had raised to greatness could be cast down, and when they fell, they pulled others with them. For Eleanor, the court was at the center of everything beautiful. For her husband, court life was death to the soul. For him, pleasure was found on the battlefield. Henry didn't care if Eleanor could keep up. After all, if the pace proved to be too frantic for her, or life on the road proved to be too difficult, she would always be allowed to retire quietly to a nunnery, for that would forfeit all of her land holdings to her husband. But Eleanor was a force to be reckoned with. After all, this was a woman who already completed a crusade. While touring the South, Henry raised up loyalists while tearing down walls that might one day be used to keep him out of his new lands. By 1153, Eleanor was pregnant, and Henry left her behind to finally launch his long-awaited conquest of England. Although he was quite chauvinistic, Henry left Eleanor in charge of his southern territories, while his mother, Matilda, through whom he had a claim to the English throne, served as his regent of the north. Again, we are witness to a moment where Eleanor has been purposefully sidelined. While many might assume that that would bring happiness to the heart of such an independent woman, Eleanor was never pleased to be placed on the sidelines. At her core, she sought power and influence, something that had been forcibly robbed from her when she happened to have been born as a girl. 
Her entire upbringing had impressed upon her troubadourian stories of heroic men who accomplished great things, and the women who were pawned off to them in order to create dynastic marriages. Rather than remain in Aquitaine as her husband had decreed, she passed the regency to one of her own trusted followers and moved into her mother-in-law's northern territories. There, she proceeded to ruffle feathers by setting up a troubadourian-styled court within Henry's capital city. Her arrival forced the men of Anjou to learn to speak eloquently, dress well, and have their hair properly cut. Those that didn't have the manners required were sent away in order to find them. Ironically, most of the troubadours that she hired happened to be fleeing from the previous court that she had set up for Louis, as he sought to remove every reminder of his troublesome first wife. Boyd informs us that she managed to flip the court upside down by making the men into the court's supplicants, with the ladies of the court sitting in the men's traditional places of judgment. He sees the role reversal of courtly love, the poetry and songs, as an antidote to the emotional aridity of her life, spent in politically arranged marriages, with sons sent away to be brought up by others, and daughters dispatched as child brides, never to be seen again. It was here that she gave birth to her first son in 1154. She named her first long-awaited boy William, in honor of her father and grandfather. Again, testing the limits of her power, she granted the boy the title of Duke of Aquitaine, without first consulting her husband, who remained bogged down in England. Just one day after the joyous birth, King Stephen of England's only son choked to death during a meal. A few months after that, Stephen, still in a state of grief, relented to naming Henry as his heir allowing him to cease his war long enough in order to return home to his wife and newborn son. Their plan was to wait out Stephen's remaining days on earth. At 22 years of age, Henry was assured of surviving longer than the 50-year-old Stephen. He didn't have to wait for the grieving king's death for long. In the final months of 1154, Henry and Eleanor crossed the English Channel in order to claim what they had been promised, the throne of England. On the Sunday before Christmas, they were officially crowned king and queen in Westminster Abbey. Thus, the Angevin Empire was officially born. Pregnant again, Eleanor, now 32, was married to a man who now ruled from the Scottish border to the frontier of Spain. She remains the only woman in history who can claim to have been both the Queen of England and France. She quickly attempted to bring her new lands up to her lofty personal standards. With William's conquest having happened only 200 years prior, the French language was still widely utilized within the courts of England proving once again that she sought to be more than the sum of her titles she immediately invested in a wharf known as queensyth she used the port to create a monopoly over the importation of french wines which all happened to come from her own personal estates 
Through a shrewd mixture of intelligence and power, Eleanor established herself as the wealthiest woman in the world. It was during this time that Henry turned over the running of England to Thomas Becket, a key figure in his downfall. Becket was put in charge of restoring Westminster Palace as a royal court. New royal quarters were particularly necessary as the couple welcomed a second son to their growing brood, naming him Henry after the boy's father. Eleanor was also burdened with one of Henry's bastard sons named Joffrey. Cheating was still somehow an unsolved problem during this age, despite the fact that the court commonly slept in one great hall with a fire blazing in the center. Becket served as Henry's pimp, regularly playing host to Henry and whichever girl had caught his attention in the moment. As king, Henry moved court so frequently and slept with so many different women that Becket's residence, rather than the palace, became the de facto center of English politics. Eleanor at this point tied herself closely to her husband in a desperate attempt to stay politically relevant. The fact that she remained permanently in a state of pregnancy was part of her strategy in regards to her quest. For what it's worth, Henry was quite pleased with his wife's fertility. Historian Douglas Boyd suspects that Henry had a larger plan in mind, seeking out either the title of Holy Roman Emperor, or perhaps having his eyes on an even greater prize, the stole and ferula of the Pope. If he managed to achieve either promotion, he would need a large number of children that he could trust in order to divide Europe up among his family. In his mid-twenties, Henry remained constantly on the move, almost as if he were a whirlwind. Matilda, the couple's third child and Eleanor's fifth, was conceived and born in 1156. Regrettably, tragedy struck shortly after, with William passing away due to illness. Not even the death of his heir caused Henry to slow down. At each location that the couple visited, Eleanor spread her influence. Throughout England, she introduced fireplaces and glazed windows. She brought in workers from Aquitaine in order to create multicolored tiles of a Moorish style popular in Spain for her apartments. Realizing by now that she could not directly steer her husband, she began to exert influence behind the scenes by ordering her loyal wards to marry influential men so that she could use them as ears and eyes in the king's council, from which she remained stubbornly barred. Thus, Eleanor created and ran her own top-secret spy agency from within the Empire. In 1157, Richard, the not-quite-yet-a-Lionheart, was born. The infant was immediately left in Aquitaine with a wet nurse, for Henry was once again on the move, and Eleanor remained steadfastly determined to stay attached to the levers of power. They traveled over 3,000 miles during that year, crisscrossing England. They even had the audacity to broker a marriage between their son Henry and one of the daughters of King Louis from his second marriage. 
In the final agreement, Louis demanded a clause in the contract which stipulated that his daughter ought to never be raised in Eleanor's household. From this point on, Marguerite was raised in Normandy as a ward of Henry. During the handoff, the two kings, who had once fought a war over Eleanor, toured Henry's French holdings as friends, with Louis claiming that he loved no man more than the king of the English. Despite the newfound joyous friendship between her current and former husbands, Eleanor was still denied any custody of the two daughters that her and Louis had brought into the world. The camaraderie was severely tested when Henry invaded Toulouse in order to expand his territorial holdings. For once, Louis adequately performed the role of a warrior and managed to halt the advances of Henry, who was severely hampered by a lack of funds to pay his mercenaries. Eleanor was dispatched to England in order to raise more money to keep her husband's army in the field. The decision to send Eleanor shows that she remained both powerful and essential to Henry's success. It also reveals that he trusted her completely. She rushed to Winchester, braving a dangerous winter crossing of the Channel, and secured the funds. The moment clearly left an impression on Henry regarding his wife's capability. He made her the sole regent of England for the next three years. Becket, his right-hand man, was subsequently shifted to serve in Normandy. Boyd reveals that this three-year stint left its mark on the island, telling us that Eleanor imported the latest fashions of poetry and music and dismissed anyone who was poorly dressed or hadn't properly cut their hair to her satisfaction. She added to the culture French stories of Roland Charlemagne as well as the legends of Greece and Rome to compete with Arthurian legends. It was arguably at Eleanor's short-lived London court that European literature, whose business had hitherto been instruction, first developed the entertainment form it has never lost. Romances became dedicated to her, while traditionalists once again whispered about the queen's flirtatious ways, despite the fact that it was a well-known fact that the king slept with anyone whom he chose. There is little doubt in Boyd's mind that if there were any truth to the rumors about the queen, that Henry would have immediately locked her up. Still, the old guard wondered to what degree her troubadour's southern culture was having on the men of the court. During her time in charge, the fighting between Henry and Louis continued on the continental mainland. The war took an odd turn when Louis's second wife passed away while giving birth to his fourth child. Now entering his 40th year, Louis had failed to produce a male heir and thus remarried in less than a month. His bride was the daughter of the powerful Count of Champagne and had historical blood ties to Normandy. Henry worried about a wider conspiracy and broke his word as he was known to, regarding his heir Henry and Louis's daughter Marguerite, moving them from Normandy to Eleanor's far distant court in London. 
The two children, neither of whom had seen their sixth birthday, were then married, and Henry seized the castles that had been promised as a portion of her dowry. The speed at which Henry's forces moved stunned the newlywed French king, who was forced to abandon the field once again. Henry returned to Eleanor after three years of campaigning in a jovial mood in 1160. Soon, his grand design would be put into motion with the announcement of the death of the Archbishop of England. The Catholic Church in England was one of the stickiest thorns in Henry's side, an influential force that regularly pushed back against his wishes. Seeking absolute power, he desired to place a loyalist in charge, and forced his chancellor-slash-wingman Thomas Becket into the role. He pondered this move for over a year, during which time Eleanor gave birth to Eleanor, her ninth child and Henry's seventh. Becket's appointment was the first of Henry's two mistakes in this year. The former chancellor wasn't fit for the clergy, as he had never served at the lower rungs of the pastoral hierarchy. His was the clearest of all political appointments for all to see. Becket himself warned Henry to not make the move, reportedly quoting the Gospel of Matthew that no man can serve two masters. Still, Henry went ahead with his plan, having his chancellor consecrated as a priest, bishop, and then archbishop in the span of two days. To his credit, Becket took the job seriously, showcasing a level of devotion that is difficult to understand. He took to wearing a horsehair shirt, gave himself daily floggings, and rose repeatedly at dawn to wash the feet of beggars and distribute food to the poor. Despite all of his efforts to ingrain himself within the church, he was always perceived as an outsider who had been thrust upon them. Still, Becket continued to serve the church, using inside knowledge from his time running Henry's government to claw back church land and money that had been unduly seized. Henry's second mistake was to prematurely crown his son, Henry the Younger, as king. It isn't exactly clear as to why he did so, but it likely had to do with the turbulent transitions of power that had occurred in England since his mother Matilda had been unfairly expelled from the English Isles. Despite being crowned, Henry was never given a number, thus making the infamous Henry VIII as the ninth king of England to bear that name. But Henry the Younger was king in name only, no land, revenue, nor responsibilities were given to the boy, who for the moment remained in the care of Thomas Becket. The heir was soon removed from the care of the church after Becket disavowed Henry's brother's proposed marriage, on grounds of them being too closely related. The fight that ensued led to the creation of the Constitutions of Clarendon which redefined the relationship between England's church and the state government. The articles allowed the king to tax the church, and made it so that every church position had to have the king's consent before it was filled. This was a direct assault on the independence of the faith. 
Becket was forced to flee under the cover of night after the furious king had him arraigned on some trumped-up charges. After he was caught, the king fined him 300 pounds. After paying it, Henry demanded another 300 pounds. The next day, he pressed Becket to resign, before finding him 30,000 pounds the following day. Sensing that the inevitable final step in this game would involve his death, Becket managed to get away and flee to the court of King Louis. After Becket revealed what was happening behind the scenes, the Pope threatened Henry with excommunication, which threw the king into a rage to such a degree that he began to literally foam at the mouth before tearing his own bedding apart so that he could chew on the straw of his mattresses. Once the fit calmed, he decreed that everyone related to Becket shared in the archbishop's guilt, resulting in more than 400 deportations. In 1165, Louis fathered Philip of Augustus, and Henry lost out on his dream of seeing his brood earn the throne of France through young Henry's marriage to Marguerite. Becket's betrayal also hindered Henry's grand scheme to elevate himself to the heights of the papacy. But it didn't yet wholly ruin it. Joan, his third legitimate daughter, was born in the same year, and each child that he sired offered the hope of a marriage contract that would work to grant him more territory and power. The sniping between Becket and Henry continued into the next year, during which Eleanor gave birth to her tenth and final child, John. With menopause quickly approaching, Eleanor's usefulness to Henry was dwindling quickly. Within a few hours of John's birth, Henry made another mistake in forcing the lords of Aquitaine to swear fealty to young Henry. Eleanor, who had always favored Richard more than any other child, had previously named him as the Duke of Aquitaine, without first asking her husband. Richard had spent all of his years within the southern territory, and the sudden dispossession of his titles greatly upset the queen. Or perhaps she was just annoyed that Henry's philanderous ways had gifted her an STD in the run-up to the birth of John. Either way, Eleanor seemed to despise her youngest son from the very beginning of his life, shipping him off to the church for the entirety of his upbringing. In the fourteen and a half years that she had been married to Henry, she had spent the equivalent of six entire years pregnant and on the move. In an era in which every pregnancy had a high likelihood of being lethal to the mother, Eleanor left a legacy of five daughters and four influential sons who all reached adulthood. As part of her husband's grand design for European supremacy, her daughter Matilda was auctioned off to the Duke of Saxony and Bavaria. Not yet ready to rebel, Eleanor escorted her daughter to her waiting husband in the southern portions of their empire. 
she approached the journey with a clear intent to never return to England, bringing seven full shiploads of her belongings back to Aquitaine. Sensing weakness, her vassals in southern France decided that now was the appropriate time to publicly switch their allegiance back to Louis. Eleanor was caught in the crossfire and taken captive along the way. Some suggest that the plot was a four-dimensional chess move by Eleanor, who was swiftly freed by the knight William the Marshal in a daring rescue that saw some of Henry's loyalists cut down during the fighting. William was handsomely rewarded by Eleanor and was soon sent on to serve as a spy within her husband's court. The queen had not lost her ability to turn a foe into a friend. Asserting her ancestral claim, Eleanor put down what proved to be a minor rebellion and set up her court. One of her first acts was to aid the Benedictian Abbey of Fontevon, an organization founded on the principle that women were morally superior to men. Her point made, Henry calmed down in 1169 and returned the title of Aquitaine to Richard, promising the boy's hand in marriage to Alice, another of Louis's daughters. Because she was only nine years old, Henry held on to her as his ward in England. The next five years saw husband and wife live separate lives with the children splitting time between Aquitaine and England. As is often the case when estranged parents become too focused on their own personal lives, the children began to run amok. Young Henry became an infamously poor gambler, wasting money in fantastic schemes, such as his decision to host a tournament for knights named William, of which there were more than 100. Richard developed an unhealthy love of slaughter and greed for gold. Prince Joffrey, the third living son, and not to be confused with Joffrey the bastard son living within the household, became attached to the church, despite the fact that he was an atheist. And John, the runt of the family, grew up intensely jealous of all of them. Within this environment, Boyd tells us that Eleanor was more a queen in her own right than any other woman in the world. For what was happening in her court was a rebellion against the bloody masculine business of war and the tournament and the harrying and killing of beasts with hawk and hound in favor of the subtler pleasures of life. Fine clothes, good conversation, poetry, music, and all the gay sabor of Mediterranean civilization. But the good times rarely last. In 1169, her daughter Joan was married off to the King of Sicily, and Henry restored the property rights of Thomas Becket in order to have him officiate a second coronation of young Henry, who was growing increasingly impatient at a status quo that left him powerless. Becket, however, steadfastly refused to return to England. Richard, now twelve, was officially crowned as the Duke of Aquitaine, a spitting image of the warrior poet that Eleanor remembered her grandfather as. 
Her insistence of Richard's ceremony, however, got her disinvited from the coronation ceremony of young Henry. She was joined in absentia by young Henry's wife, Marguerite, whom Henry, the father, didn't want to crown as queen in case it resulted in King Louis gaining a loose hereditary claim to the throne of England. Plus, as long as she wasn't crowned, he could have her divorced and auction off his son once again. Four knights overheard the king's ranting about Becket's absence, and took it upon themselves to travel into Louis's kingdom in order to murder the archbishop. Becket immediately achieved the status of martyrdom, and a cult following popped up that included the likes of King Louis and the Pope. Forced to admit that he was at least partially responsible for the archbishop's death, Henry agreed to take up a crusade in order to atone for his sins. He even relented to being physically scourged by 80 monks. With Becket now in his rearview mirror, he once again turned towards his grand scheme for rule over Europe. He engaged John in an attempt to gain territory in Spain, but upon thinking about the deal after it was agreed upon, the girl's father asked what territories John owned. In other words, he inquired about what he was going to get out of this deal. Henry hastily took three castles that had previously been in young Henry's name and thrust them upon John, who up until this time had been jokingly referred to by his father as John Lackland. Although the slight may have appeared minor, this was the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back, causing the revolt of young Henry against the man with whom he shared a name. The boy king was joined by all of his siblings with the exception of John, who happened to be at the center of the controversy. Most notable of all was the fact that Eleanor joined her sons in waging war against her husband. This is the only recorded coup attempt in history that saw the king's wife at the forefront of the rebellion. The details of this war are extensively covered in the first episode in our series on Richard the Lionheart. For the sake of time, and in order to refocus the episode on our story's main character, I plan to only focus on the Eleanor portion of the failed rebellion. Her three eldest sons were rarely united in anything. Henry was a degenerate gambler. Richard had earned the nickname A and Nay, for he often changed his mind. And Joffrey was known for being as slippery as an eel. Considering these facts, many historians point to Eleanor as being the glue that kept them together. Utilizing her considerable powers of persuasion to reconcile them against their father. She also bankrolled the operations from her business ventures in Aquitaine and England. The response to her rebellion must have been a familiar one for the English Queen. King Henry ordered Eleanor to stand with him against their sons, sending a letter to her which laid the blame for everything at her feet. He wrote that, no Christian can fail to know that marriage is a firm and indissoluble union. Thus, a woman is at fault if she leaves her husband and does not observe this social bond. 
We know that unless you return to your husband, you will be the cause of widespread disaster. Henry continues, Although you alone are at fault, your actions will bring ruin on everyone. Therefore, O illustrious queen, return to your husband. While her sons fled to Paris to rally Louis' forces, Eleanor refused to become a refugee in the lands of her hated first husband. When the king's forces advanced and it was time to abandon her seat of power in Aquitaine, she was captured, disguised as a man. Once back in front of her husband, she was given a choice. Renounce her ownership of Aquitaine to Henry, or face life imprisonment. She was 52 years old, and Henry, at 39 years of age, was almost assuredly going to live longer than her. But if there is anything to be said about Eleanor, it is that she is as stubborn as a mule. She chose captivity hoping against hope that her sons would defeat her husband and free her in the process. Her hope was in vain, as Henry crushed his son's rebellion within three weeks. Meanwhile, her internment would continue for a decade. The queen had fallen. Her only role in life was now as a tool for her husband to use in order to control his children. The sons were all forgiven as their foolish attempt to wrest the club from Hercules' hand was blamed on Eleanor, just as had the French failure during the Second Crusade. Unlike Louis, however, who had desperately needed to produce a male heir, Henry was more than willing to wait out his wife. She was locked up in Old Sarum, one of England's worst castles. She would spend the next 16 years of her life there. Boyd tells us that rescue was out of the question. An assailant had to climb up the hill, scale or breach the outer parapet, cross a deep ditch, and break through a high parados surmounted by a formidable palisade. Having gotten that far, he would have to cross 200 yards of flat killing ground devoid of cover before coming to the inner defenses. Another rampart, deep ditch, and steep earth glacius surrounding the base of the castle walls. The sole gateway was reached by a drawbridge and protected by a portcullis. In the whole of England, Henry could not have chosen a more secure prison for Eleanor. Unfortunately for our story, Eleanor, as she did while serving as Louis' captive during the Second Crusade, ceases to exist. One troubadour wrote that it's worse than death for she who lives, yearning and suffering above ground, without the strength that hope could give, where no help or support is to be found. Her husband sought to move on and marry Alice, one of Louis's daughters that had been engaged to Richard but he was insistent upon retaining Aquitaine, which he could only do if she renounced. 
Thus, it became a battle of wills. Her confinement was made slightly more comfortable after she reluctantly agreed to pass on her titles to Richard. Her luck began to turn six years into her imprisonment as her ex-King Louis passed from this earth, elevating his formidable son Philip Augustus to the French throne. Unlike his father, Philip would prove to be quite the adversary for Henry. His scheming would eventually be the undoing of the Angevinian Empire. Philip, along with troubadour Bertrand de Bourne, continually played the brothers against their father, and then later against one another in order to create a murderous free-for-all in Henry's French territories. The conflict eventually came to a head with a second rebellion by young Henry against his father, this time ending when the young king fell ill and passed away. In his dying wish, young Henry begged his father to forgive Eleanor, who had been imprisoned now for a decade. It was quite the gift for Eleanor, and something that she would not have expected from her eldest living child. Boyd writes that her eldest son was dead, but he had always been Henry's favorite and not hers. So what grief she felt was tempered by the knowledge that Richard was now heir to the throne of England. With Henry's increasingly poor health, the gamble she had taken at the end of the Great Rebellion of 1173-74 was within a heartbeat of being won. With young Henry removed from the chessboard, Philip began to work his magic on Richard, and the two became fast friends. When King Henry tried to relocate Richard to London in order to begin his training as heir to the throne, Philip openly wondered whether Aquitaine would be left to become the playground of John. Alice, Philip's half-sister, Henry's mistress, and Richard's fiancée, became the vortex that sucked the life out of Eleanor's family. Desiring to not fight his children a third time, Henry's clever solution was to release Eleanor, so that she, and not John, could once again serve as the ruler of Aquitaine. At an advanced 63 years of age, she once again returned to her homeland with a semblance of power and independence. There was temporary peace, during which her son Joffrey died as the result of an accident at a tournament. War between Henry and Richard eventually broke out, with Eleanor cognizant of the fact that her son's failure would surely mean that her imprisonment would begin anew. But Henry, now 55 years old, suffered greatly from what was either untreated hemorrhoids or perhaps Crohn's disease. In a moment of weakness, he was forced to relent to Richard's sword, whispering in his son's ear, May God let me live to avenge myself on you. God was not in a forgiving mood, however, and Henry soon departed this world. Richard was now king of the Angevinian Empire, and for Eleanor, everything changed. She was once again free and finally able to directly influence events. Richard turned on Philip, refusing to return either Alice or Philip's castles which had been taken by his father in the conflict. 
Joffrey, the still-living bastard son of Henry, was made into an archbishop in order to politically neutralize him, and Prince John, the next in line for the throne, was showered with land and titles to prevent him from following in his brother's rebellious footsteps. The world was indelibly different now for the 67-year-old Dowager Queen. The power players from her generation, including her two husbands, had departed this earth. They had each cheated her out of the power, dignity, and privileges that had been hers by birthright. She was determined to access them now. But her position in the Angevinian Empire remained ambiguous. Her son was king, but she was still in charge of Aquitaine. She continued to use the title Queen of England, despite the fact that she no longer wore a crown. Her advanced age became a benefit to her, as Boyd tells us that because few people of either sex then lived to her age, people saw her survival, both physically and mentally intact, as the resurrection of a legend. Richard was desperate to lead the Third Crusade, and turned to his mother, rather than Joffrey or John, to serve as regent while he was away. When he set sail for the Crusade, England had been bankrupted by the Sal al-Din tithe, but she still ordered that 10% of all fines paid to the king were diverted into her own accounts. After all, one couldn't rule without the means to do so. It was one month after Richard departed for the Middle East that she personally saw to ensuring that her family remained in power. Richard had wanted to take John with him on the crusade, but if both were to be killed, the crown would then pass to his nephew the departed Joffrey's four-year-old son, Arthur. The boy's age meant that England would likely be plunged into a war of succession. Protecting against such a future, Eleanor kept John in England, while she personally traveled to Spain to arrange for Berengaria to wed Richard. Rather than just sending the girl to her son, she personally escorted the young princess in order to ensure that the wedding would occur while Richard was camped in Sicily. She stayed long enough to oversee that the marriage was consummated. She had a right to be concerned as Richard had fathered no children, shown little interest in women, and had previously confessed to the sin of sodomy. Thus, there were very sincere doubts regarding whether or not he would ever produce an heir. Alice was finally released from captivity and allowed to return to her half-brother's court in Paris. The outrage over her handling, as well as small slights during the crusade, turned Richard and Philip into lifelong enemies. On her way home, she stopped to speak to the Pope in order to ensure that the appointment of Joffrey the Bastard went through. Philip returned prematurely from the crusade, years ahead of Richard, and began laying the foundation for his invasion of the French-held portions of the Angevinian Empire. It was the 70-year-old Eleanor that oversaw the defensive fortifications that held him at bay, while Richard dithered in the Holy Land, 
as John began to spread rumors of Richard's premature death. It was Eleanor that held the court together, while waiting for definitive proof of the Lionheart's fate. When Richard was taken and held hostage by the Holy Roman Emperor, it was Eleanor that oversaw the collection of new taxes that were levied in order to free her son. After he was released, it was also Eleanor who prevented him from immediately seeking out vengeance against John and Philip. Instead, at her guidance, the mother and son pair stopped along the way to confirm old alliances for the coming fight. Hers was the steady hand on the wheel. She personally guided him through six days of touring England in order to ensure that the kingdom knew that the stories spread by John were false. Such help was necessary as Richard had never bothered to learn the English language or any of the northerners' customs. Once everything was placed into the Lionheart's hands, she retired to a convent which Henry had previously attempted to bully her into. But duty wasn't done with the April Queen. In 1199, Richard was mortally wounded during a meaningless siege along the borderlands. He immediately sent for his mother. In two days, the septuagenarian traveled day and night across 100 miles in order to be at the bedside of her favorite child. Richard's final will and testament was personally delivered to his mother. There is no record of it, nor any sign that anyone else had been told of what was bequeathed, which provides fertile ground for conspiracy theories. Three times before this point, Richard had publicly named his nephew Arthur as his heir. According to Eleanor, however, he changed his mind on his deathbed and had desired to name John as the king. This was an incredible about-face, and King Philip seized upon it as propaganda, opening division by publicly proclaiming that Arthur was the rightful king. Eleanor dipped into her personal funds in order to ensure that her youngest made it to his coronation. Bishop Hugh was gifted the Abbey of Turpinay, and Mio, the chaplain, a confidant of Richard, was rewarded with substantial gifts to his abbey. Boyd openly wonders if these were bribes to stay silent regarding who Richard intended to succeed him. It was then up to Eleanor to negotiate a lasting peace between Philip, the son of her first husband, and John, the son of her second. It was the April Queen that was truly the most powerful piece on the chessboard. Throughout it all, however, her focus remained squarely on her homeland of Aquitaine. Boyd tells us, that she turned her attention to the strategy for safeguarding the integrity of the duchy, which was once again threatening to fragment into two separate entities, north and south of the Garonne. Philip, having accepted Arthur's homage for the three Angevinian counties, she had no wish to give John any rights over Aquitaine in case he lost Normandy or died without issue, in which case Arthur would succeed him by default. She therefore made a convoluted but futilely sound arrangement. 
maintaining that Richard's dukedom had been for his lifetime only, and she was not, therefore, part of his inheritable estate. She reasserted plenary powers for herself on the grounds that she had never actually renounced her titles as Countess of Portois and Duchess of Aquitaine. Even during the fifteen agonizing years when Henry used every trick to force her to do so, she then ceded the county and duchy to John on condition that he swear loyalty to her and renounce all his rights for the duration of her lifetime or until such earlier time as might suit her. Her price was that he confirm all her prerogatives as Queen of England, which kept her still the richest woman in the world. At the age of 78, she was still influencing the events that oversaw Europe, arranging a marriage between her granddaughter and Philip's son as a way of reuniting her blood with that of the Capetians. Thus, she ensued that her blood would sit on both thrones, as she had. As one might have guessed, that granddaughter, Queen Blanche, would go on to be one of the greatest rulers in French history. The dynastic marriage made it clear that Eleanor sought power for her family. Supporting John, the least loved of her children, was the best way to ensure that her direct line retained the power that she had suffered in order to obtain. Looking at the breadth of her life, it is easy to see why Eleanor would support John over Arthur. But it turned out to be one of her greatest mistakes. Deprived of the coronation that he had been promised by King Richard, Arthur gathered his supporters and went to war. Knowing that she was the real force behind the throne, Arthur besieged his own grandmother. She slyly dragged out the negotiations until John could arrive to turn the tables. In the days that followed, Arthur, her grandson, was captured, tortured, and killed by John's orders. It was the first of many errors during his reign, which is still widely regarded as the worst in English history. When Philip then marched against his English counterpart, he avoided Aquitaine out of respect for Eleanor. His defeat of John at Chateau Gallard signaled the end of English rule of Normandy. Three and a half weeks later, Eleanor passed away. The April Queen's gravestone read, She improved on her high birth by the honesty of her life, the purity of her morals, the flower of her virtues, and by her life without reproach, she surpassed almost all the queens of the world. She would become known as the Grandmother of Europe, as members of her brood ruled kingdoms from Ireland to the Holy Land. In all, she had 51 grandchildren. Eleanor the Crusader had been forced by circumstances to take on the traditional male role in government, diplomacy, and war. She performed each role better than her youngest son and succeeded at times better than either of her husbands, each of whom wore similar crowns. Even Richard the Lionheart, one of England's most renowned kings, 
depended upon his mother to ensure his rule, carry out his wishes, and repeatedly come to his rescue. Hers was a life worth remembering. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.